So tonight I want to talk to you about some of the Eightfold Path. So what I thought I would do for the week uh, was to uh, look at the Eightfold Path and uh, you know, cover some of it throughout the week and possibly I can cover the eight. We'll see how it goes. And so tonight, so I'm not going to do them sequentially, but I'm going to use the one I feel are appropriate to the time we are in the retreat. So tonight, I would like to look, in fact, at the last one and the first one. And the last one is appropriate concentration. And the first one is appropriate vision or appropriate seeing. And if you want to know the eight, in case you're not aware of them, it's uh, generally it's, it's right, but uh, we prefer to use appropriate. So appropriate seeing. Then the second one sometimes is translated appropriate intention or appropriate thought. Then appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindful, mindfulness, appropriate concentration. So I want just to look at the last one and the first one. Because I think they are the two, in a way, who are most connected to what we're trying to do today trying to do the meditation retreat, starting with the meditation schedule. So appropriate concentration, it's Sama Samadhi, Sama, S-A-M-M-A. Sama generally is translated as uh, right, but it can be translated as whole, sometimes authentic, and here I will use appropriate. And so samadhi, uh, the root of samadhi is to put together, to collect together. So in a way, sama samadhi, appropriate concentration, is about composure, is about unification of mind. Then you have two main definitions. One definition is actually a very technical description of meditative absorptive state, also known as jhanas. And the other definition is actually more focused on unification of mind, uh, sustaining, helping with other seven of the Eightfold Path. And that's the one I want to to look at more, because I think the, absor uh, the first definition about the jhanas, about the absorption, I think it's kind of, first it's technical, and also I feel it's uh, possibly only for certain professionals <laughs> and people who have certain uh, tendencies. But again, if you're interested and you want to talk more about this in the discussion, we can. But the other one which is interesting is unification of mind, composure. And also, in a way, one of the definitions is concentration untainted by craving. So in a way, it's the ability to pay attention, to focus, and not to be dispersed. And today, as you try to concentrate on the breath, 
possibly you might have felt at time distracted, <laughs> dispersed, or totally somewhere else. You know, you might have passed 10 or 20 minutes. You were not here, but you were maybe in the past, in the future, or who knows where you went. Sometimes we go to very strange places. It's very interesting, especially if you were asleep. Then you might go really, really weird places. I was asleep half of the day, so I really went to weird places too. And what is interesting with this concentration untainted by craving is that as you sat today, maybe some of you had the impression, I cannot concentrate. And one more time, you might have confirmed your impression, I cannot concentrate because I have thought when I meditate. But personally, I would say anybody has the ability to focus. Anybody has the ability to concentrate. And often, the problem in daily life is that we concentrate too much. And if you become obsessed by anything, you know how it feels like. You cannot think about anything else. Some people might want to might want you to talk about something else, but you cannot. Once I was el helping a friend to move with another friend, and for two hours, non-stop, as we are moving the pots, she went on. He said this, and this was so terrible. It was awful. He always is like this. I hate this guy. And two hours, non-stop. I tried to kind of move it a bit. No way. She really, I mean, this is what I call concentration, <laughs> but possibly tainted by craving or various other things. So it's not that we don't have the ability to concentrate. Is how do we use it? What kind of concentration is it? So in a way here, we're talking of unification of mind, but within what I would call stability and openness, within composure. It's not what I would call obsession. So we're not trying to become obsessed by the breath. Because often I feel that people think they must become obsessed by the breath, and they cannot think about anything but the breath. I mean, the breath is a bit faint to become obsessed by the breath. It's a bit tough. You know, some people do this. They really get on. I mean, they love the breath, and it really works. And they can really focus on it. And others can, you know, where is it anyway? You know, how can I feel it anyway? You know, it's, so how do we focus on the breath, or on the body, or any other things? So in a way, to see the difference between being obsessed by thought, a feeling, a sensation, or a sound, which then generally leads us to be overwhelmed. This is often what I find is that we kind of immersed in it, but we're so immersed in it that we cannot see anything else. So generally, we overwhelm. So when we focus here, we're not trying to be overwhelmed by the breath. We're just trying to, in a way, anchor in the breath. 
I think it's kind of, you know, quite a big difference. So when we obsess by something, we're totally oblivious to anything else. We cannot actually, even if we want to, we cannot think about anything else. Many years ago, I was traveling to South Africa. And after I got there and started the retreat, I phoned my mother, who told me we've been burgled. And, you know, it was not so much fun, but people were there to take care of her. And then I started the retreat. And by the next day, suddenly I was guided the meditation. And suddenly I realized for the last 20 hours, I had been thinking, being obsessed by two things. And I had not really seen it because it was so immersing, so I was so caught in it in a way. And so there was two running of this obsession. The first one was security. How can I make the house secure? But then with the creative awareness, I could see I could not do anything right here, right now, because I had to be in South Africa for six weeks. And so seeing that, I let go of it. But the other one was even better. The other one, I was plotting revenge. <laughs> you know, that if they came again, I would put some kind of like, you know, uh, mice catching mechanism or something <laughs> to get them until I thought maybe it would not happen and it might not be a good idea anyway. And then it went. So I think we have to see that when we caught, it's like something come over us and we cannot see anything else. So the concentration here we're talking about it's not about that. It's more like a unification of mind, a certain type of composure, a certain type I would call actually anchoring. And so in Sama Samadhi, we have actually one of the aspects of the meditation, which is Samatha. Because generally when awareness practice is presented, mindfulness practice, you hear about samatha and vipassana. And so samadhi, samatha comes from the same beginning, about this unification, this stability. And so part of the meditation exercise is to concentrate, is to focus, is to try to unify the mind. But how do we do this? And I think there is actually two ways to do that. One way is to push away anything else. And some type of meditation are like that. You push away anything else but the, the breath. So sometimes people might think that to concentrate means just the breath and then thought, I push them away. Feeling, I push them away. Sound, I push them away. But if you do this, you're actually going against the natural functioning of the organism. Because, of course, we can so focus on the breath that we cannot hear the sound. Of course, if we 100% on the breath, the sound will really recede in the background. Same with the feeling, the sensation. But is it what we're really trying to do? 
when we in a way try to, to cultivate this secular Buddhism, this secular meditation, as Stephen said, secular is about this world, this time. And so to me, to try to cut off everything but one thing seems to <coughs> me to go against the functioning of the organism and often this will create tension because we will be in a posture where on one, on, with one hand we're trying to catch the breath and with the other we're trying to push away. So we actually have two things going on. I'm trying to be aware of the breath and then no thought. Know this, know that, know that. Which then often create tension. The fact you're trying to push away something while you're trying to, in a way, nearly grab at something else. And so to me, it seems to make more sense to actually go more with the natural functioning of the organism, which is we have the senses, we have the object of the senses, and the consciousness of the senses which arise and pass away. And that this is a natural functioning and this is not about not having that. But generally our tendency is to be in contact with all these things, the thought, the feeling, the sensation, the sound, and generally to spin. We have a tendency to spin and to proliferate. And so in a way, but by this proliferation, we generally then go into like kind of little tunnel vision, being caught by a thought or caught by a sound or caught by a memory. And actually we're not so much here. And so to see one of the idea of the concentration is what I would call anchoring. So that actually instead of trying to hold onto the breath, and push everything away, we use the breath as a way to anchor in the experience. So that actually the breath is like if you have a boat which is anchored, then generally the boat, unless it's kind of really strapped with lots of uh, uh, rope when you are in the port, generally you have the anchor in the, near the port in the sea, and so the boat moves about but it doesn't disappear on the horizon. It just moves about a bit. And this is in a way the same idea with the meditation we're trying to do. Concentrating in the breath means anchoring in the breath. And what you can notice is that notice you try to be aware of the breath, then generally we are distracted by something, by some contact with something, and then you remember, and then you come back. And when you come back, what is interesting, you don't just come back to the breath, you come back to the whole thing. You come back to the whole multiple experience. You sitting here with the people around you, feeling sort sensation. And that's very interesting, that thing of being away and then going into this kind of smaller part of the experience and coming back to the breath, and you could nearly say being unified with everything that is coming at that moment. But because we cannot be aware of everything in any given moment to the same degree, 
it's really hard work, then we anchor in one thing. So we anchor, for example, in the breath, and then in the background, there is this wide open awareness. So the thought arise and pass away, the sound, the feeling, the sensation. And then the thing is more about actually coming back. And then I think this is, I know generally you might not think it's fun coming back again and again and you sit in meditation or you walk in meditation and you mm -hmm. come back 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. But what is important is to see that each time you come back, in a gentle way, not in a kind of a repressive way, but each time you come back because you remember the anchor, you remember the intention to be aware, you actually do two things. You don't feed the habit, emotional, mental, or physical habit, and you dissolve its power so that you then can bring back to the creative functioning. So to see that what we're trying to do in meditation is not a lobotomy. We're not just trying to have kind of, you know, empty space in the mind, heart, or in the body. Or if it's not a lobotomy we're looking for is some kind of little cloud that we kind of end up on and then everything underneath does not matter. So nothing can bother me. That also is not the idea. But the fact that by coming back again and again and again, we dissolve, the, we don't feed the habit and we dissolve its power. And I would say that's one of the main reasons meditation works. And I think that's one of the main reasons this mindfulness thing works. Just because of that. By being aware of the breath, then we just come back. And then you can come back to the creative functioning. Let's see one thing that you might have experienced today. You might have experienced planning. You might have, I don't know, planned how much you would eat, where you would walk, if you were going to lie down or not after lunch. Or you might be planning your holidays, Easter holidays. Or you might be planning your retirement. I don't know. But we generally, you know, have always something to plan. And it's interesting planning because we need to plan. It's a function. We need to plan. But then what we do is that we plan, and then we have the planning of the planning of the planning. Then we have the remembering of the planning of the planning. And then we get stressed. And then we feel a little... <gasps> And also we feel busy. This is the thing with planning, it's very occupying. But in a way, I would give you the recipe with planning in meditation. Plan any given thing five times and then drop it. Because I can assure you later on you'll plan it again anyway. <laughs> so right now five times might just be enough. You know? And then get a little break from that. And then to come back to the creative function and what I would call the freedom of planning if I want to and not doing it 
if I don't want to. And this is what I really call the freedom of the planning. I mean, I, I, I'm a good organizer. I love to plan and organize. But I have learned that actually it is not good for my stomach. <laughs> Over planning is really a bad idea. Because it seems to produce acid in my stomach. And then I get stomach pain. So after meditating for a long time in Korea and not having to organize much, I was really much better. Then I came back to England, and then the food was even better, so my stomach was even better. So I was fine. And then one day, I had this pain in this stomach, which I really knew from over-planning, over-organizing. And I wonder, but what is going on? What, why am I feeling this pain? Am I eating good food, etc.? And then I realized, because we are going for the first time to South Africa, I was planning like 150%. You must not remember, you must not forget, you must do this, you must do that, constantly. And when I realized that all this over-planning was creating the pain, I said, wait a minute. I don't need to plan if that's what it causes. And that's why now I don't plan so much. I plan as little as I can. Just a strict minimum of planning. Because you see, we have to see that all this is not just the mental, but also is how it feels. And I would say, in a way, a signal is pa it's pain. If there is pain, what's going on? How much do I need to plan? So we need to see that in meditation, when we come back again and again and we leave planning, we choose to come back to the breath, to the anchor, we develop free freedom toward that functioning. We're not getting rid of it. We're just changing the process. We're moving from not being able to stop it to having the choice to do it or not. That's what the, the concentration is about. It's just that effect. So the anchoring, as the Zen master said, if you have a thousand thoughts, you have a thousand times the opportunity to come back, the opportunity to come back to now. So going away is not a problem. What possibly could be a little a problem is how long do you go? You know? As a, there is in England, in the underground, you have mind the gap. I think maybe that's what we could have, mind the gap. Do we kind of go for 10 minutes or do we go for three seconds? And this will very much depends on the energy we have. I think we have to see that the power of the concentration is also very much connected to the energy we have. I mean, today I was very tired. And so when I was sitting in meditation, I could really feel it until the last sitting in the afternoon. I was so sleepy, really. But I had enough concentration that I could kind of not totally flop. Uh, sometimes it happens to people suddenly, they kind of flop. You know, I, could, I was able to stay straight, but I could feel like that time to time. I had to kind of, you know, I, and it was I, the only concentration I could do was just to be with the body. So to see that the concentration for me is not just with the mind. I would say it's an unification of body, mind, and heart. 
through the anchoring in the breast, for example, or the body or the sun. We'll have different objects throughout the week. Then you have the next one I wanted to talk about. <coughs> and this is appropriate vision, or generally known as right view. And appropriate vision, often you have the impression, and there are many definitions. This one has many definitions. And this can be very metaphysical, or it can be, I would say, very relevant to what we do here. So I'm going to use the one I think is most relevant to what we do here. And so this is the definition of appropriate vision, which is the first one of the Eightfold Path. When one understands how form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, and how the eye sees and so on, are impermanent, one thereby possesses right view, appropriate vision. So it's not kind of some great transcendent metaphysical anything. And it's what you might have been able to do already today. Just to be aware <coughs> that what we experience is impermanent. That our thoughts arise and pass away, the feelings arise and pass away, the sensations, the sounds, my sleepiness arose and passed away. And why, I mean, I was not worried about it. You might have thought, I mean, she's a teacher. She's supposed to be, you know, awakened 24-7, you know. <laughs> no sleep, you know, she must be like there. And very likely some of you thought, oops. I thought, wait a minute, you know. I thought she was, you know, real teacher. <laughs> but I was not worried because I know that if I, you know, either did not sleep enough, or if I'm a little tired, then I, I have less energy. If I have less energy, then the body goes shut down. And so, in a way, I knew it was impermanent. So I just thought, well, I just have to sit there. I just have to be with this state of sleepiness, and at some point, it will lift. At some point, the battery will be recharged. And then I will sit and not fall asleep, which is what happened. By the last sitting in the afternoon, I was there. And it had lifted. And this is something I think is very important on a meditation retreat. That, again, what we are doing is not transcending our physiology. I think, on the contrary, the meditation, the awareness, helps us to understand the influence of our biology, of our physiology, that actually we cannot have the same energy throughout the day or throughout the week. It's not because I am tired now that I'm going to be tired all week. I know it comes and it goes. And so I think this is a thing to see that if we are more in tune, and I think this is something in daily life to bring the awareness to, to the amount of energy we have, and what happens with the energy we have. Because I think this is a big condition 
often we think, I am always like this. But I would really question that. I don't think you are always like this. But I would say, if you are tired, yes, you might be more likely to do certain things. You might be more likely to go into automatic patterns, which might be negative, painful for yourself and others. And so in a way, with this looking into impermanence, which is appropriate vision, which is not something compli complicated. We can cultivate it here and now. We can also cultivate it into our daily life. And so it's kind of to counteract in with this appropriate vision, it's a little like an antidote to the tendency we have to fix and to permanentize. Because often we experience something, especially if it's intense, and we say, it's always like this. It will never change. Or at least it will last all week. And if you go that way, it's always like this. It will never change. It will last a long time. How can I deal with this? I cannot stand this. That actually we, you make things more difficult. And so part of what we do is to develop wisdom. And that's where the appropriate vision comes in, to develop the wisdom of knowing things are impermanent. It doesn't mean that they change every two minutes. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, tomorrow I will be a pink wallaby. Mm -hmm. I doubt that, you know. So there is a certain continuity. The thing that things are impermanent doesn't mean things change every two seconds. There is a certain continuity, but within that, there are a lot of scope for change. And then the practice, and that's where this fits in with the second aspect of the meditation, which we cultivate, is vipassana, looking deeply. And so this is just as we sit here, not only do we focus on the breath or on sensation or sound, but at the same time, we bring the awareness to the fact that things change. Thoughts arise and pass away. Feelings arise and pass away. Sensation arise and pass away. Sounds arise and pass away. And so in a way, by unifying the mind, focusing the mind, the concentration helps us not to be so much somewhere else. Because the more we are somewhere else, the less we are in tune with the fact that things change. Because we're not here. So we can't be aware that they're changing. Because we are into abstraction, proliferation, or wherever we go. And so in a way, the concentration helps us to come back <coughs> here. And then the looking deeply helps us to go inside the experience and to see two aspects of change. One is that things arise and pass away. That's the first one. The fact that things might not necessarily last. They arise, stay a while, and pass away. They can arise, go away immediately, or they can arise, stay a bit, and go. 
But then others continue longer. For example, here, you, here you have something which is excellent in this place, sine sera, and which really can be what I would call a second anchor, the sound of the river. The sound of the river is relatively continuous. But if you go inside it, it changes within itself. It, the sound is not exactly the same. It changes, it comes and goes. And so what you can do is what I call the kind of the second anchor, is that you can again and again anchor in the sound of the river because as long as you hear the sound of the river, you are here. When you don't hear it anymore, you are somewhere else. <laughs> this is a, it doesn't mean, I mean, we go, we're going to do listening meditation in, uh, after tomorrow, but this is a way actually to check. Am I here or am I somewhere else? And this is actually a way to come back is that, you know, you're here, you get lost in some storyline or whatever it is. And then, ah, the sound of the river. <coughs> Anchoring in it, and then you can go back to the breath. So it's very, again, important to see that the breath is not the exclusive anchor. What we can do is what I call foreground and background. So in the foreground, you can have the breath let's say 70%, and in the background you can have everything else, 30%. Or you can have the breath 60%, the sound of the river 20%, and the rest at the back. And it doesn't matter what you are anchoring in, because often people say, the breath, this is sacred. If you cannot focus on the breath, you know, you, you can't meditate. Or the body, if you can't body scan really, you know, what hope do you have to meditate? Or if you can't do this, or if you can't do that. But I think it's very important to see that not all the objects of meditation that we use as anchor works to the same degree with all of us. I would say generally 60% of the people can do any one of the things that will present. Some people love to be aware of the breath. Some people prefer to be aware of the sound. And some people really enjoy focusing on the questioning. And so personally, I think we need to play to our strengths. What is it that I can anchor in and it suits my temperament? If you have a tendency to have asthma, then focusing on the breath might not be a good idea. Because often, sometimes it can help, but often it can bring headache or tension. Then listening to the sound would be better. But if you have tinnitus ringing in the ears, listening to the sound might not be so helpful, unless you do it in nature. And so again, it's kind of you have to see, what is it I can anchor with? This is a question. What is it I can anchor with so there is a bit this unification, this stability. And then the next thing is, how can I look deeply? How can I be aware that things are impermanent? How can I be aware that things arise?
and pass away. And I think things arising and passing away to me is key in terms actually of compassion. To see that the appropriate vision is not just because the Buddha said things are impermanent. And then now you must believe that things are impermanent. Repeat together things are impermanent ten times a day. And then maybe you know you'll get it. No, 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 no. The thing is not to believe it. The thing is to experience it. So that then we are more in tune with the flow of life. Because in a way, why are things impermanent? So that they can evolve. This is a thing. In order to, for, for life to continue, we need to have enough stability, but enough change. Too, many cha too much change, chaos, too much stability, stasis. So in a way, the two go together. The anchoring brings the stability and the looking deeply, the visioning, makes us able to see change. And then instead of fighting change, we go with change. We accompany it instead of fighting it. And also to me, the one thing which is very important with that is that actually through knowing impermanence, we can actually develop, uncover, experience compassion. To me, this is one of the key. And so in a way, to be careful not to see impermanence and just what I would call rational. You know, it's things are impermanent, it's rational, it's logical. French people love it's logical, you know. I, uh, many years ago, I had some uh, problem with um, uh, something and then I had to have an operation which did not work out, then I had another one in France, which kind of worked out. But then I had this pain in my leg. And uh, so I went to the doctor in France, a surgeon, and you know, I said, you know, I have this pain in the leg. He said, it's not logical. Like, it's not logical, it doesn't exist. But I was feeling it. Anyway, so in a way, this impermanence is not about this is logical or it's not logical. But it's more about penetrating into, in a way, one of the bases of life, or how life happens. And then in terms of life, to see that one of the aspects of impermanence is ultimate change, death. And this is one of the great teachings my teacher, Master Kuzan in Korea, used to tell us. He used to tell us two things. One was that our life rested upon a single breath. And then he used to say, meditate. You know, you don't know when it's going to stop. Meditate. He thought it was, you know, you have to work hard. So, in, but what does this mean? Our life rests upon a single breath. It means my life, your life, rests upon a single breath. And if you really know that, intimately, you start to look at yourself and you start to look at others in a very different way. Because first you take yourself and others not for granted anymore. Because generally, of course, we are not dead yet. So we think, well, I die later, you know, maybe in a few years' time. Not yet. 
But if we were to really know that whoever we know, ourselves, who we cherish, their life rests upon a single breath, I think we would be with them in a very different way. We would feel compassion for that life which is fragile. And I think we go, would go a little beyond the story. Because when we relate with each other, when we relate with life, if we come with a lot of baggage, a lot of the time, what happened in the past, and this, that, and another, and you did this, and you did not do that, and you should have done this. And to me, when I really knew, when I really understood impermanence as that, each person, each life, their life rests upon a single breath, then my heart opened. And my relationship really changed. Instead of coming prepared with all this baggage when I met people, I started to meet them there and then, where they were, where I was in that moment. And then it's so much, I would say, warmer, richer encounter because you're really in the moment, which you know is this moment. And then it will change, and something <coughs> will happen too. So can, be with, can you be with this moment and really calm with all the feeling you can have of protecting life, seeing life in its richness and fragility? But the other aspect also of impermanence is what I call the gift of change. You see, we, we fix ourselves. We fix others. I am always like this. You will always be like this. This, for me, is one of the most uncompassionate things we can say to somebody. To say to them, you will never change. This is really tough, you know, you will never change. Or when you think yourself, I will never change. Many years ago, I saw this program about this uh, working with reconciliation in a prison in South Africa. And there was this little lady, really very kind of lively, and she was working with gang members about reconciliation and things of that nature. And she worked with a young man who was part of a gang, and on his face, he had tattooed, fuck my mother. So I mean, he really, you know, age 19, he decided this is it. You know, this is my life. I am like this. I am not going to change. And then he did this exercise with this lady, and he changed. And the problem is that he changed, but his look <laughs> did not represent the change. So he was a little stuck, you know, between his fixed idea from before, and now he was not like that. He really changed. And then through the program, then he get a surgeon which got rid of it. So it was a little easier doing the work he then did to help other people. But that's what is interesting, how we fix ourselves. This is the way it is. It will never change. And the problem with that is actually intensity. This is a problem we have with not seeing that things are impermanent. Because we know things are impermanent, when they light, you know, when not much happened, then yes, we know that things change. When no problem, 
I can see change. When I get a little fixed in my habit, I see change less. But when I am stuck in an intense state, I cannot see anything else. And this is, in a way, one of our problems, I would say, that when we are in an intense state, we cannot see anything else. We're totally overwhelmed. And then we, we can't see any way out. And this is why, in a way, what do we do in meditation? I think part of the thing we do in meditation, because hopefully you did not come with big, intense things. So when you sit in meditation, I would say not much happened. And you might think, but you know, something should happen. You know? I read in books, you know. You could, you know, start to float, or <laughs> you could suddenly become like a Christmas tree, you know, all lit up, or suddenly I would see the greatest truth in the universe. But that's not what it is about. Generally, not much happened. But this is excellent that not much is happening. Because within that, you can see change. Because you're not in an intense state of either happiness or unhappiness, you are in what I would call a fairly mm, neutral, and I'll talk more about this another time. And so you can notice. You see, if we're not overwhelmed by anything, if we're in a kind of relatively stable and open state, we can see change. We can see that thought. You see, I was sitting in meditation and I was trying to watch the breath, and then that thought, oh, I mean, I, I was in that thought, I, I was that thought. And then it's gone. You know, it's gone. And then you have another thought, or you have a feeling, or you just listen to sound. So, in a way, to see, the fact that you might not be all the time on the breath, this is totally fine. Because each time you come back to the breath, you can see change happening. Because each time you come back to the breath or the anchor, actually, you make a choice. This is what we do when we do meditation. And we look like we're not doing anything. We sit there, you know, and you think, you know, where is this, you know, awakening? You know, nothing is happening. <laughs> But actually, a lot is happening. What is happening is that again and again, you can make the choice to come back. So instead of getting overwhelmed, getting into intensity, you can come back to what I would call humdrum. But I think it's good humdrum, because humdrum, you can really see more clearly what's going on. And so if you really cultivate when it's, you know, relatively light and, you know, not too kind of, you know, up and down, you can start to see change. You also can start to see more of the subtlety of changes. And then it becomes experiential. And then you know, I can change. Things can change. I am not saying that they will change fast. That I cannot guarantee. Nobody can guarantee that. But there is a possibility for change. And to me, this is, again, at the heart of compassion. The fact that when you look at yourself, when you look at somebody else, or when you look at a garden which is totally full of weed, you know, this can change. 
I can change. They can change. And just that, open yourself up. I think this is the thing about change. It gives us space. Instead of things being fixed and solid, this is it. And I am not going to change. It's like, okay, things change. Then we become aware of something else, which we'll talk about more, conditions. If things change, then what are the conditions which make them change? And that's where we can come in. And actually, the risk can, can be quite fun of exploring condition, of looking, what is it that makes a difference? And then that could be a talk for another evening. So that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? Um, I, I noticed uh, in, for me sometimes it seems to be easier to have your eyes open because uh, when you've got your eyes open and you concentrate on your breath, it's harder for the other thoughts to come because you, you're sort of busy trying to concentrate on your breath and also think you know, you've got your vision taking up you know, most of your mind. Yeah, you see, what is very important to see is that when you sit in meditation, there is no one right way to sit in meditation. I mean, of course, each tradition will tell you. Theravada tradition, Burmese tradition, close your eyes. If you don't close your eyes, forget about awakening. The Zen people, close your eyes, terrible. How can you hope to awaken if you close your eyes? You must have them half open just like Bodhidharma. <laughs> then you have the people from the Dzogchen tradition in the Tibetan, and they say you must have your eyes wide open. <laughs> you know? And personally, I would say it depends. It's what works for you. And so I would say if you feel sleepy, that's what I did today. I had my eyes quite open a lot of the time. Because <laughs> if you feel a bit sleepy or a bit agitated, to open the eyes, bring some light in, and there can be a bit more clarity. But some people, if they feel agitated, they might like to close the eyes. And generally, it might make them a little less agitated. So in a way, it's one has to find for each person what works for me. So it is not one way which is better. So some people, they gently close the eyes, and it works for them. I know for myself, if I close the eyes, I feel much more sleepy. So I do it more Zen style, which is half open and gazing gently in front of me. But if I feel very sleepy, then I will open the eyes wide, because that generally will make me, me up. But again, it's, if you're, you have some problem with your eyes, then it might be better for you to close them, because then you feel less tension. So it's back. What I think is important on retreat, to see that it's an exploration. So to try things out. If I close my eyes, how is it? Especially after lunch. I would not recommend it then. Or half open or fully open. What works? What is it that helps me to anchor? And what is it that helps me to be aware of change? And that's what matters. Not that you do this or that you do that. Yes? Martin, what about pain? How do you perceive pain and how do you learn to let go of the perception of pain? Well, I don't think you can let go of the perception, but you can, you see, you, 
first, well, as I said, if you sit on the floor and it's very, you see, you have to say, you sit on the floor and if after five minutes you have terrible pain, straight away, from the morning onward, then I would try to do something about it, maybe sit on a chair. If first sitting in the morning, you're quite fine. Second sitting, not too bad. Third sitting, ooh, gets a little painful quicker. In the afternoon, a little bit too. Then we can look at it. But if when you stand up, the pain continues, you have to do something about it. Sit on a chair or change with the cushion. If that doesn't happen, that as soon as you stand up, the pain goes. Then the question is to first to notice how I am different with the pain according to my state of mind. Like if you're really concentrated, you're really present also to the change, then actually you see the pain, but you don't identify with it. And so generally it's relatively okay. If you are totally daydreaming, you're generally not here, so generally the pain is not a problem. But if you are in between, then you really feel the pain. And often there is, this is my knee, it's going to drop off, I'll never walk again. So then, the thing is, how soon does it happen? This is really one of the things, if it's, it starts like, you know, within two minutes of you sitting for 30 minutes, and the pain is the whole time, then it's a bit problematic. I would really recommend a chair. But if it happens toward after 20 minutes, and you have the pain in the knee, as long as you don't have already a problem there, then one of the things we can do, but this will also depend on the energy we have. If we don't have much energy, it will be harder to do it. So if you have the energy, what you can do is actually where you feel the pain, you can go inside the experience of it. So you go inside the knee and you try to, how does it feel? And you don't say, me, my, just how does the sensation feel? And in a way, being ex experiencing the fluidity of it. It comes, it goes. That's one thing we can do. Another thing is actually not to go there. I know generally people tell you, go deeply into it. But another thing is to leave the pain in the knee and actually focus on when you don't have pain. So maybe focus on your hand. Just focus on your hand, and then the pain is in the background. Because sometimes if we go into the pain, it intensifies it. Sometimes we go into the pain and it's like it dissolves it. And there is no guarantee which one it's going to be. <laughs> so we need to have, you know, diverse method. So I would say to play, to play with it, to play with it, to see how can I be with this. Maybe move once, but I would not move more than once or twice, because after that one gets a bit restless. And if it's really too painful, I would say alternate with a chair to see if it does not, if it helps a bit with that. But of course, being on a retreat, even if you sit on a chair, you're going to have some discomfort at some point. And then we can, in a way, try to explore that. What is it that seems to make it worse? What is it that seems to make me feel a little more at peace with it, also can I try, one thing we have to be careful when we sit is that we can be a little tense. 
So time to time checking the posture and trying to relax it, that also can help a little. So that's what I can say about that now. Okay. So if there is nothing else, then now there is some uh, walking meditation, or of course you can always do standing meditation when it's in the evening like this. And then at 8.30, we will have the final sitting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.